0: Hello and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Wednesday, May 17th. And I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's
1: it going, my friend? A little nostalgic. It's been a long time since I've heard those
0: words, but thumbs the breaks of doing a podcast with a professional athlete. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I guess a life update is in order. I apologize to the folks out there. Uh, our regular listeners, bit of a hiatus as I figured out the move from London to Toronto for the summer, um, playing with the professional Ultimate Frisbee team, Toronto Rush of the AUDL, American Ultimate Disc League. Scored my first goal last weekend, pretty cool, um, and then didn't get rostered for this weekend coming up. So <laughs> it'd be like that sometimes, but was trying to figure out all of the stuff of moving new schedule that i'm on so i appreciate everyone's patience and max especially i appreciate your flexibility and patience with me of course
1: so what's the team record how's the adjustment to the pace of play feeling
0: oh wow yeah uh rough rough start to the season uh we got smoked in new york and in boston uh back-to-back nights didn't help that i had to get on a bus at 8 p.m. roughly we drove through the night back to Toronto got in at 6 a.m. on Sunday next day had to get to London and hop on a flight to Kansas City for work so just busy uh, eight-day stretch we yeah we were not prepared for the level of play that those two teams brought the first weekend Um, so started the season 0-2 and then got our uh, a dub in our home opener against Montreal this past weekend. Uh, played a lot better, um, a lot more focused, a lot more prepared. And the pace of play in this sport, or for the AUDL rather, is is rather shocking compare, compared to club. Because after a point is scored in club, you have 40 seconds, 60 seconds, kind of in between points to chat things through, get set up. In the AUDL, you have to be firing out there because the next poll is coming up and, 30 seconds tops and uh and you have second seven seconds with the disc rather than 10. And just things move at a higher level of pace. Um and and the timeouts are only a minute. So it's just there's not really a time to breathe. A lot of it is based on instinct and stuff that you're reading, reacting to in the game. Um, adjustments get made in between quarters and at halftime, which is good, but certainly uh Getting my feet wet in Boston was interesting and then felt a little bit better in Montreal, but still just trying to keep up with the with the different game.
1: So it goes without saying, but there will be plenty of disc content for the <laughs> foreseeable future, uh, at least this summer, as we discuss the developments. And I, along with the listeners, learn a little more about the sport centered around the things so many of us like to toss around high. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Audl.tv free week trial. And then it is $14 a month after that, if anyone is interested in checking it out.
1: All right. As with every week, there has been plenty terrible and plenty stupid on the internet. But with two-week break, we're gonna skip over that and hopefully get back to it next week. So we can dedicate as much of the podcast as we can purely to sports. So with that preamble underway, Owen, tell me, was this season a failure for the Toronto Maple
0: Leafs? You see what I did there? Oh, God. From the larger context of this franchise, no. Because they finally won a game in the second round for the first time in (laughs) 20 years. And thank God they did so because they almost found a new way to break all of our hearts. Obviously sucks getting splunked by the Panthers in five in that second round. They kind of did to us what Tampa did to them last week or last year when Tampa swept them out of the second round. So it's a step in the right direction for this team. However, they still looked outclassed. And if you think that they had a shot against Carolina or Dallas or Vegas, the teams also remaining left in this final round here before the Stanley Cup finals, I would tell you they they don't belong, right? Like this was this loss was very clearly a result of Florida being the superior team, having the superior goaltending, having the superior physicality and pace of play. And so from the larger context of the Leafs as a franchise, they finally got over the the curse of the first round. They finally won an elimination game uh, where they were the eliminators, not the eliminated. And then you take that and turn it into, hey, wait a second. For every other team in the league, this season is a failure based on the expectation set. When they won that first round, they became the favorites to win the Stanley Cup and they got smoked. And so that piece of it when you look at it objectively is a failure and I will, I, I can definitely see change coming here for this franchise.
1: Yeah. I, I think you more or less touched on how I feel. I obviously was referencing Giannis's answer to a question uh, for anyone who missed it. He gave a pretty inspiring response to a very typical question and the way we view sports and a lot of the generation or the discussion generated around that answer was about expectations and progress. So you touched pretty well on what the expectations were and how they were both validated in getting past the first round and then just blown in a whole new way. I feel like every playoff series except the Washington Capitals, we went seven games, or if you count, the Columbus won five games. So it was a pretty new experience to be out of the playoffs, like in a short and sweet fashion, rather than that, like long, drawn out, agonizing, puts you just on that knife's edge between hope and despair before tipping towards despair. What's tougher for me? to swallow is it felt like they had a chance in those first three losses they they did not get outplayed outclassed for 60 minutes they had bounces go the wrong ways they had more posts they had a couple lapses of moments in goaltending they had the struggle of having to replace the goaltender mid game and so looking at any one game this series felt closer than 4-1 mm-hmm. I'll get to the roughing of game five in a minute, but I want that to be the last piece of this puzzle touched on. Um, So that's expectations met and dashed at the same time. (laughs) So progress, That, that was the really inspiring part of Giannis's answer. Every season, championship or not, is a step towards that ultimate goal. And if you look at the Leafs' situation, they've really got one more year. So they made a lot of moves. They have free agents expiring this offseason. But overall, their roster heading into next year is in pretty decent shape. Assuming Jake Muzzin stays on long-term IR, they should have about $15 million in cap space. And three forwards, one defenseman to sign. They have Wall and Murray locked up under goaltending, Ilya Samsonov will be a restricted free agent, not a free agent. Uh, So you'd either like to see him traded to a team who can give us value in a cap-friendly way to make a push, or sign him to about what Murray's making, four or five million, and trade Murray to a team that will take him. The difficulty with that is that... um, that's the type of deal that teams will take midway through a season when they've had some injuries and they're just trying to hang in it. It's hard to imagine any team swallowing Murray's contract in an off season for me. Sorry. Who are we signing to for
0: four, 4.5 million Samsonov. I think we can get them at less than that. And I, I think, would, we, yeah, I would love that. Um, yeah. But like, look
1: at what Jack Campbell was able to do off of one season in terms of contracts. Mm. But like the goaltender market is just so fraught with teams willing to bid high on a one season thing yeah. and just hope they get something out of it, and that's not a race we can afford to get into. And he's a restricted free agent, yeah. so yeah. we have our chance. There's always arbitration. Mm. Um,
0: so that's goaltending. Your other option there is you go Joseph Wool, something yeah. cheap, and then pay five mil for one year of Mark Andre Flurry. So you ditch Samsonov and Murray. Yeah, you get you, you have to get rid of Murray. That contract has to move. You have to send him to Arizona Island. Like that, that's where he's got to go. <sighs>
1: like if you can move Samsonov, you get draft picks that you want to use to for a short term retool. You get a player who's on like the second or third year of their rookie contract. You can you can survive the cap hit of Wool and Murray and have goaltending that you like um so i'm not sure defense the one thing i feel really good about is the fact that lilligren got legitimate playoff minutes and i hope that will be good for his development right now heading into next season we have riley brody mccabe lilligren and giordano under contract so obviously you have to prepare for injuries you want more than one more guy for depth I pray to God that guy is not Justin Hall. Thank you for your service, but we need someone who is not a step slow. Um, I'm not sure if we're interested in keeping Gustavson. He hardly got minutes, and that typically doesn't lend yourself to wanting to re-sign with a team. I'm looking at the forward core as Matthews, Tavares, Nylander, Marner, Yarncrook, Lafferty, and then Matthew Nyes and Nick Robertson that is a pretty solid first eight players, so you'd need four more. Ryan O'Reilly has expressed interest in staying with the Leafs, very praiseworthy of the organization. Uh, It's just a question of at 32 years old, what other offers is he going to get and how competitive can we stay? As we're entering the last two years of Tavares' $11 million contract and kind of looking more and more forward to that ending, we can't really afford to do that. And like Kerfoot going out is going to be a big hole. Again, he was at 3500000 million. I'm barely comfortable with resigning at that, him at that. And I just feel like another team will offer him more. Uh, this organization has done a fairly good job of filling in the depth around the margins at value pricing, which brings me to my last point about moving forward. I think Kyle Dubas did everything you could possibly expect this trade deadline and more. I don't look around the talent pool of GMs and the direction this team has been in and feel a strong urge for anything else. So I truly hope that uh, Leafs, Ownership will give him, I think, a three year contract that would let him ride out one year past Marner's and Tavares's uh, contract expiring. And then, based on how he handles that core four, whether it's like he can steer the ship with consultation on ownership and feedback from the next two years on if and who gets re signed for how much, and based on that direction, go from there three years later. I've clearly had a fair amount of time to think about this. Uh, So I know that was a lot to cover. Um, But going into this last upcoming season of the core four signed, I guess it's not even a given that you want those four players to be wearing Maple Leafs uniforms at the start of the season. So what are you thinking about, O?
0: Yeah, I'd say even go two years with Kyle because this is an incredibly important offseason because this is your this is your chance to re-sign Austin Matthews. And that's the guy, right? That's the one guy where you this is the face of your franchise. If you can get him on another long-term deal, he'll end up as a top 5 performing leaf of all time. Crazy enough to say that, but it's true. And he's a guy you have to get done now. Or he has to get moved. You can't ride out the season with a player like this to free agency because you cannot lose him for nothing. You cannot lose him for nothing because then this last seven years was for nothing. William Nylander, also up at the end of this next season. I am very curious to see how Dubas approaches him. My feeling is that he will not be a leaf next season because of the initial contract, which everyone thought was an overpay turned into a bargain. He might be looking for a raise, but he is a player at least on this leafs team in the iterations that we've seen that I think I can officially say is just not conducive to winning. Interesting. He, he possesses the puck. He's strong on the puck but no one is scared of him out there on the ice. He doesn't finish his hits. He doesn't work to get the puck back. He wants to finesse and take it away from you when you're not looking, and it just... There needs to be some... It obviously hasn't worked with any of the players, but there needs to be a different ingredient there. And so, as much as I love Willie, I think he's the odd man out right now, just in terms of when contracts are expiring and how much you are set to make. That frees up some cap space, uh, about what, eight million in cap space, which would give some more flexibility to re-sign Orion O'Reilly. I'd love for them to re-sign Luke Shen on probably a minimum. Um, Mark Giordano needs to be the seventh defenseman on this team. He cannot play regularly at this point in his career. So whether that's Eric Gustafson, whether that's Connor Timmins, whether that is um, the Finnish guy who who the prospect who's coming over, um, that could be a move there. Maybe someone else, but uh, that decor needs to get filled up a little bit, and then you look to address. Okay, we like what Lafferty gives us. We like what O'Reilly gives us. We like what Camp gives us. We liked what Bunting gives us, but can we afford him now that he's going to be looking for a raise? I'd say no. But you need players like Bunting on your team, Mm -hmm. right? For Florida, it's Luce Terainan. That whole third line was just too hot to handle. And then before that, it was the Yanni Gord, Blake Coleman, Nick Paul, Pat Maroons of the world. And with Montreal, it was Arturi Lekkonen and, and Corey Perry, right? And it feels like the Leafs don't have that. And I don't know how it. you find that, but they don't have that, right? Like the the bottom six that somehow drive the play and possess the puck. And they had they, they, their fourth line had flashes of that, but didn't feel as dangerous as some of these other teams. And obviously, you went in lose with your best players but with hockey being as much parity as it is and as much as of a team sport it is you just need to raise the ceiling of that of that bottom six in your roster and so if Nylander's gone and you get some budget defensemen coming in you've got Matthew Nyes on his rookie deal still this is the time when you look at taking some swings yarn croak I thought is a decent swing and they have him for three more years, but who's the next Yanni Gord, Blake Coleman guy that you can kind of get on a good deal that's going to change the fortunes of your your bottom six and make a significant uh, change to the franchise? And so, say Dubis probably has max two more years to to do that if he wants to stay at all.
1: Yeah, it's not entirely up to Leafs ownership in that, then uh, regard. I hear what you're saying on the timing of the contract and the value and style of play contrasted with the importance of Matthews. There's just something that rubs me incredibly the wrong way about tossing out the door the guy who showed up for you the most in the playoffs. And that goal from Nylander to tie it in game five, which I'm going to talk about a little now, um, was just such, you can't make a stronger case for why you want this guy on your roster. When he gets his legs going and builds up speed, uh, he reaches a level of just untouchableness. Um, the, the speed to get through those players and the wrist shot uh, to get past the goaltender was is just, when you talk about bringing a high ceiling in hockey, I don't think it gets any higher than that. And if i just do not like the idea of like it would have to be a very very good return for me to feel okay with it um but yeah you you look at how the calgary flames lost uh johnny goudreau for nothing last season and i certainly don't want to be in that shoes
0: um and so that is a perfect comparison because they traded Jonathan Huberto, who came off of a record season for a left winger in the NHL in terms of assists. But they knew they had to change something else. And they went with Matthew Kachuk, who's a bit more of a sandpaper guy. He scores the hell out of the puck too, don't get me wrong. He was over 100 points this year. But he's a guy conducive to winning in the playoffs. And yeah. you look at the last teams that have won, right? Like McKinnon, Rantanen, Landeskog. Those guys get after it. Stamkos, Kucherov, Point—they get after it, right? Uh, O'Reilly on that Blues team—that was—I mean, like he was the main driving force behind that Cup, and and they get after it. Even like you go back, Washington, Ovechkin, Oshie, Backstrom. Backstrom is maybe the guy that you'd say is is soft, but he was one of the best defensive centermen in the league at that yeah. point. So you just look at the the top players or forwards on on these teams that win and just don't know if Willie or Marner fit that profile. It's fair. Okay, let me bitch about
1: the roughing for a minute.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So my eyes opened up right in the first period when Sam Bennett blew a brutal hit on John Tavares. Uh, what else is new is, with it that guy? Borderline charging, borderline boarding, not interference, but way too hard. a hit in way too unsafe a way. And as much as I was frustrated with the refs, I was also frustrated with the Leafs because I had my eyes on Bennett every time he touched the puck for the rest of the game, and no one touched him. Uh, this was especially frustrating after he had an even more illegal hit on Morgan Riley, which was definitely interference, probably charging, almost certainly boarding with a little bit of elbowing. So that was two brutal things by the refs in terms of penalties right off the bat. It It's more a frustration with the way the NHL review system works than the refs on the fact that the goal was not a goal. That we scored in the second or third period, there were a couple camera angles where it felt like the puck isn't on the goal line. It's under the pads and the pads are past the goal line. Where could the puck be but in the net? But logic by reasoning and elimination is like the anti need a strong proof to overturn a call. And when the ref never saw the puck in the net, because Bobrovsky did a good job of covering it as it went in the net. Of course, the ref isn't going to call it. Uh, So that is just general frustration with the rule system more than the refs. Um, It still really, really sucked. What sucked the most was watching Goudas lie down on the ice, take out Yarn Crook in a trip, grab his stick, and have not a ref, not an overview official, not Sheldon Keefe say or do a thing about it in the goal that ultimately cost us this series. When you go down 3 nothing in a hockey, any playoff series, you need to play perfectly without margin for error. And even though I feel like it was the refs error that cost us this game, of course it is still the team's fault for getting in that place where they could not afford to have a badly refed game. That doesn't make it any easier a pill for me to swallow that I strongly feel the refs lost us that game.
0: Yeah, I mean, Tampa fans have the gripe from the first round series of the non-call on point, and, and my recommendation to the refs and to the league is why do we change the threshold in the playoffs? Just call the penalties. Okay. The players will adjust. People are saying the players won't adjust. The players will adjust. And is it so bad to have power plays in a hockey game? Like it's exciting. Power plays are exciting. It's actually sometimes more exciting than regular open play because you know there's imminent scoring threats for two straight minutes. So why do we need to do that? Like, I was sweating more when the Leafs were up in power plays, and then I was more confident when they were down in power plays because I knew it would even out, which is ridiculous. How do you explain that to someone watching where there's an obvious penalty? They go, why wasn't that called? Oh, the NHL likes to just pick and choose when it causes penalties. Well, by what criteria? Eh, they kind of just, anything obvious they'll call, and besides that, they let them go. It's like, how do you explain the puck being in the net to someone and telling them, no, that's actually not a goal? How do you gain new fans from that? So obviously it affects our team. We complain about it. Nothing changes. Life goes on. But at some point there has to be a referendum. And then the last piece of that is just get technology that tells you if the puck's in the net or not. Yeah. I don't know why we don't have it in football. Don't know why we don't have it in hockey. but. Tennis very obviously has great technology for it. The gold and, standard. Yeah, and uh, and I think it's on its way, or at least I'd like to hope so. I, I've heard they tried
1: it, and players complained about the pucks.
0: They'll I, adjust. They're professionals.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just like in all leagues more power to be given to the video review officials who have every angle no time or space constraints and less power to the humans on the ice trying to keep up
0: with the fastest game of the world and call it right in soccer they let play go on and then they'll call it a goal in international too Mm -hmm. if they can go back and look at it and then say goal and then they just wind the clock back to that point it's not hard yeah you just keep the game going and then make sure you get the call right
1: like it frustrates me even more with how obvious the penalty Gudis took on that series winning goal was it just like, I cannot imagine a world where five minutes into that celebration, the celebration gets cut. Actually, no, Gudis to the box, two minutes play on. Um,
0: but that's what should have happened. Yeah. That piece is a little bit less. It's harder to argue that, but my thought is just, Make the calls when you see them, because some of them they just truly let go. Yeah, it is hilarious to watch the review.
1: Like you said, the illusion of it—anything other than game management—is gone when you see like the TV talking head saying, "Well, this many penalties for this team and too fewer for that team after that period, so that team has an advantage. Look for it. and we'll see for how they can get their power play going." Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> well, it honestly, with work and with Frisbee and even just playing the Florida Panthers in the second round at the end of or in the middle of May, I definitely did it didn't feel the same as a normal playoff series, and I felt more checked out. And so it hurt a little bit less when they got eliminated. So I'm feeling all right with it compared to previous years. And we have the most thrilling Canadian Final Four set, Dallas, we, Vegas, Carolina, and Florida. I don't know if you can get more South with the matchups. It could be Tampa instead of Carolina, and that's about it. Ridiculousness. Um, I guess you could throw Arizona in there, but they're not ever going to be a good team. They're playing again at Mullet Arena next year if you saw that. <laughs> Can I just
1: interject and say, dear Canadian media, never ever ever, 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 ever publish nonstop headlines about an all Canadian Stanley Cup final having a chance until one Canadian team has won either the Western Conference series <laughs> and the other or Eastern and the other Canadian team is up at least 3-2 with a chance of doing it. That is when you can start speculating about an all-Canadian final. Doing it after two teams reach the second round and are the best teams in their respective conferences in a sport as wild, parody-filled, and as hockey in a universe as uh, unbalanced and karmically rigged against Canadian teams doing well in hockey. Uh, Just stop it, please. Never do that again. Okay, sorry. Um, As you mentioned, the hockey hangover after the Leafs lose, always strong with me. So I'm pretty checked out for this Final Four and hoping to get back into it around the time of the finals. I don't know where my Dallas hat is right now.
0: Other important news in the NHL. The NHL Draft Lottery took place. And feels rigged. (laughs) That's what I'm going to say. Arizona lands at number 6 and number 12. That's good. I'm okay with that. Montreal lands at number 5. Fine by me. Anaheim with the best odds. They drop one spot, and that's potentially a franchise-changing spot to drop as the Chicago Blackhawks land the number one pick in the NHL draft and are on the clock now to select Connor Bedard which will completely flip all of the stories coming out of that franchise that has been an abomination the last few years and the NHL it couldn't have lined up more perfectly for having this new shiny toy to say hey let's all look over here and continue to wipe away progress and learning and teaching moments that we're trying to move forward with this league so i like sure you can say it's all down to the ping pong balls but i was disgusted with the result and it made me like hockey one percent less
1: is any like
0: uh, i genuinely have not
1: given this story like the attention my feeling at an overview is wanting everyone involved and responsible to suffer and never work in the NHL for the next 10 years at least. And after that, the fans shouldn't be overly punished uh, with an eternally bad franchise. Mm -hmm. So my feelings about Chicago winning the pick are greatly dependent on how much of the organization who will now enjoy Connor Bedard uh, were at the helm in any capacity during the time of
0: those events. That's fair. And I don't have the knowledge of that either, but I imagine there is still plenty of folks remaining in Chicago jobs or other jobs in the league. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's really the most I want to talk about that unless you have any other winners nope. or losers from the draft lottery. Cool. Um as you said,
1: very happy Montreal did not get the
0: Bedard. All right. Yeah, another, another draft, draft lottery. lottery. Yes. Last night, got home from practice and saw that this team moved from David Robinson to Tim Duncan. And now, 24 years later, the San Antonio Spurs will select Victor Wembanyama with the number one pick in the 2023 NBA draft. And bring forth Mm. another (laughs) mutant, demigod, center, NBA-ready player. Maybe the most hyped prospect since LeBron James. And maybe even overhyped at this point with some of the media calling him the best prospect in all of sports. Now, that is a massive statement to make. Recency bias. Of course, you're trying to generate clicks. I don't blame, I, I don't hate the player. And it's a fantastic win for a franchise that has seen a ton of winning, not in the last five years, but plenty before that, the playoff streak. Uh, they have some interesting young wings in Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell, and Jeremy Sohan that will complement Wemby Well. They also have $40 million in cap space. So could we see. Uh, a Fred Van Vliet or another point guard be added into that mix? And will they try and win right away or maybe have one more mediocre season to bring in a sidekick for Victor? I'm very, very curious to see what the team building approaches from San Antonio going into the offseason here and into free agency, but it's a massive win for them to climb up. And I think the biggest loser from this draft is Detroit who dropped Absolutely. down to five, Uh, So they don't even have a shot at Scoot or Brandon Miller or one of the Thompson twins. We'll see, but uh, they really, they shut down Cade for a whole season just to end up with the fifth pick. So that was rough for them as well. San Antonio up, Detroit down. Yeah.
1: Trailblazers up as well at the number three pick. I think that's the first like speculative one. I'm Mm. not too sure, Um, but Back to Wemby for a sec, like, the expectation is basically Tim Duncan in point guard form. And I I can't even begin to imagine what that's going to look like. It's exciting for now, hopefully terrifying in five years for the sake of the NBA. I just, like, three players come to mind in Michael Porter Jr., Kevin Durant, and Chet Holmgren with that lanky, skinny, extremely well-developed shooting and dribbling for that height mm-hmm. style, and all have missed significant time with mm-hmm. injuries throughout their careers. Or Zingus as well. Yeah. So you just hope. Um, and we won't really know till we know, but oh my goodness. This could very well be a new era of and the NBA ushered in very quickly if half the hype
0: is to believe. Big dub for the Spurs. Hornets, if I were them, I'd go Scoot because you take best player available and then see where it goes from there. I think Scoot and Lamelo actually could play together and be a really fun combo because Lamelo wants to pass first and Scoot is more of a, a scorer. So uh, I I'd, I'd like that fit there. And Mark Williams is a cool emerging young center. And then another sneaky winner is the Dallas Mavericks who tanked the last two games of the season to fall into that 10th spot so they would get the protection on it and not have to give it to the Knicks. And they do end up staying in the 10th spot. So they do have their pick in this year's draft to try and add another piece around Luka. And then the story that I was reading today is the Portland Trailblazers potentially will be shopping the three uh, to try and get a win now player to go with Damian Lillard. Interesting I don't know if you stuff.
1: Break now or try and use this.
0: What are we looking here? I guess we got some bubble finals to talk after the break, and uh, I guess we can also talk at maybe some of the prospects that the Raptors might go after in the draft.
1: Yeah, I have one other thing on my mind, which we will get to right after this. The best free agents on the market, unrestricted, will be Russell Westbrook and Kyrie Irving. Some guys with player options include.
0: Don't do it. Don't sign them.
1: Chris Middleton. Fred Van Fleet. I think there was one more in half interesting player option. Uh, no, thanks. No, thanks.
0: Yeah. James Harden. No, thanks. Yeah.
1: So the best coaches on the free agency market, Nick Nurse, Doc Rivers, Monty Williams, um, Mike Budenholzer. Don't
0: mind Monty.
1: And maybe Steve Nash. What market, coaches or players, is more interesting to you this coming offseason? This is not specific to the Raptors.
0: I mean, it's interesting because you've got four former coach of the years available. But, I mean, it's coaches. And the NBA is a player-driven league. So it's a pretty easy answer for me to say the players, even though this is a pretty light free agent class and the top players are ones that need a very specific situation to land in. And so it's almost entertaining to see what team will take a swing on one of these guys. I just pray to God, it's not the Toronto Raptors.
1: Given the gun shyness over the years, I would be very surprised. Um, I I feel like I agree with you. It's a very lackluster free agency for players And that's why I genuinely feel the coaching free agency is more exciting this offseason than the player free agency. As you said, these are four coaches who have all won NBA championships, three coach of the years over the last four years, um, three NBA finals appearances over the last four years. When you look at all of them individually, I can't say I blame the organizations or I'm particularly shocked i think this very much is a bit of a musical chairs game and expect most of these coaches to end up with an organization that fired another coach on nick nurse on the bucks certainly the most interesting one to me i also wouldn't hate monty williams on the raptors please not let it be doc rivers um and yeah i'm not sure where mike budenholzer ends up A bit of more of a floor raiser than a ceiling raiser seems to be the general read on him. Yeah, but that's what I'm going to be following this free agency, honestly, unless there's some big trade requests coming up from one Kevin Durant.
0: Mm, I don't think so. I think he loves playing with Booker for now. Um, And we'll see what they do to kind of build around that team. After being eliminated by the Denver Nuggets, who took game one last night, at home against the Los Angeles Lakers. Their offense looked pretty unstoppable until the fourth quarter there where the Lakers came storming back, made the adjustment of putting Anthony Davis on Aaron Gordon to protect the paint and roam a little bit while Gordon was in the dunker spot and put Rui Hachimura, who, uh, while not the tallest player on the floor, does have some size and sturdiness to him on Jokic and, and really trying to force Jokic to work harder to post up and score rather than distribute and facilitate. And it put a damper and and stagnated the Nuggets offense quite a bit, but they were still able to come out victorious. I'm very curious to see what we get in game two, but um, looking ahead, we do have the Heat and Celtics kicking off tonight. We all remember last season when it came down to a Jimmy Butler three that just missed and the Celtics moved on to the NBA Finals. I am very, very excited for this matchup because we are going to get some vintage performances from Butler, from Bam, from Kyle Lowry, doing all of the little tricks of the trade to try and get in the head of this Celtics team who has a 97% chance of advancing to the Finals, according to ESPN odds makers. I bet against that? Least. I know, it seems a little bit extreme, <laughs> but we have a heavy favorite in this series.
1: It's fascinating because it feels like the Boston Celtics have pretty drastically underperformed through the first two rounds. You no, know,
0: they're the worst team to ever make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, according to their fan base. I just... We talked to
1: exp- expectations at the start of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And when you think about their expectations against the Hawks, against a 76ers team that was missing Embiid and certainly had holes in its game, mm-hmm. uh, the job by the Celtics was less than convincing for me. And then you look at the Heat, who I I think no one except maybe themselves expected them to do what they did against the Bucs. Maybe some more hype on the train heading into that next series. I know you had it for the Knicks before the season series started. Um, And ultimately, it was a pretty easy series win for them. Certainly more smooth than the Celtics' second-round victory. So you feel like you have this team that's been underperforming facing this team that's been overperforming. Mm -hmm. The favorites still on the underperforming team just for the ceiling they've shown this past regular season and on their finals run last season. And then you have the narrative that this is the third time these two teams have met in the last four years and that this is a rubber match. Uh, Both of those meetings happening in the Eastern Conference finals. this is very much a formed rivalry throughout this 2020s decade in the East. I'm especially hyped for it because I have a big Heat fan and a big Celtics fan in my class. Uh, I cannot wait to go to class tomorrow and just hear about the game. Um, and, and you also have the superstars, the faces of the franchise on each team who have had both had very big moments so far through these two rounds Jimmy Butler and Jason Tatum I'd say Butler the more consistent player I'd Mm -hmm. say Tatum the player with the higher peaks and the lower troughs so far they play similar positions typically Butler has guarded Brown I really hope to see that change tonight and see him on Tatum uh but Spolstra didn't seem interested in having Butler guard Brunson, the best player on the Knicks in the past series. So I wouldn't be too surprised to see him on Brown either. Yeah, I, I don't know if
0: there's anything you want to add to this series. Yeah. Well, it's going to be very much like, I mean, obviously they played Miami twice already, but also the Raptors team that they played uh, in the bubble and and teams that are undermatched or overmatched against the Celtics, will typically try to pull out the all the stops to even the margins. And one of the things we've seen consistently from teams in the past that they've at least tried to do is throw smaller guys on Brown and Tatum and really crowd their handle and try and force turnovers. Brown was susceptible to it against the Warriors and the Heat last season. We'll see if he's able to tighten that up and and keep a hold of the ball but they again are the best two players. I'd say Brown is even could be better than Butler in this series, right? They have the potential to have two of the best players in this series on their team. And they have to be assertive and they have to be aggressive against the smaller Miami front line because Bam is a great defender and Butler's a great defender. But after that, it gets pretty thin and Miami's been able to patch it together against a Bucks team that could not shoot the three in their series and against the Knicks team who fell apart under the second round pressure and could not generate a ton of offense. This Celtics offense is far and away better than the first two that they played against in the playoffs. And so it all comes down to Tatum and Brown not settling, not turning the ball over, but being assertive, doing the driving kick and generating good looks for their team.
1: Okay, Jokic. Oh, my goodness. Um, You you remember at the end of the regular season when I said I wasn't ready to make my MVP pick and would like a little (laughs) playoff data? Mm, Yes. The data's in. Nikola Jokic is the player who brings the most value to a team that I would take number one in a fantasy draft based on this year, period.
0: The first NBA player in history. To have two playoff 40-2010 games. First one he had was against Phoenix last year or in 2021, pardon me. And second one this year. The only other players to do it were Wilt Chamberlain and now the and Kareem Abdul Jabbar.
1: The triple double machine was really on display in the first quarter. Uh, where I think he racked up something like 8 points, 12 rebounds, and 5 assists. And there were a couple plays that highlighted for me how he was able to do this, all in transition. Um, First, let's just shout out the cardio, the conditioning of the mindset. He picks his time and place, and when the ball is moving and he needs to get from one end of the floor to the other, he does pick up his stride. He was always jogging. Uh, he, he chooses his moments to rest in the game flow well, um, showing off the basketball IQ a little. Uh, but on in transition on offense, a two or three plays where he just got moving as the ball moved up the floor. Uh, the nuggets find him and he always makes the pass and then gets to the rim. So he's Either going to pick up an assist or the player misses the shot. But the way he has become used his gravity to become the center of the tension and then send the ball out and just that little magicianship take a make the defense focus somewhere else. He's so good at seizing that moment to get mm. to the rim and establish position. But uh, it was also, I know just on defense, like. Yes, his drop coverage is lacking. Um, And yes, Anthony Davis can get the better of him in the post. But I think part of it is his priority isn't getting blocks. It's securing rebounding position. And they talk about it as the last line of defense, the last thing you need to do to successfully complete a defensive possession or possessions the wrong word but you know what i mean and i think there's maybe some underrated value in him letting players miss and making sure they get the that the nuggets get the board um i, I don't know what the offensive rebounding numbers looked like at the end of the game for the lakers but just something else that maybe like the defensive rebounding and how that affects his defense negatively but there's the trade-off of positively boosting defense in other ways is something i haven't heard discussed for Jokic. uh yeah that they get ahead offensively it is i don't know where the line in an nba game between this is a blowout and i can't look away this team is just one run away from getting right back in it like it feels like it's 30 like anything less than 30 and you can't really look away. And even at 30, you still got to watch till the fourth quarter. I did get a bit sleepy and kind of woke up to being announced that the Nuggets had withstood the comeback and won the game. Um, Looking ahead to game two, I'm torn between... Wow, guys like Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray did a really good job of hitting a lot of contested shots that helped stay afloat of any serious run, at least earlier in the game. It's going to be hard to do that all series and might be trouble for the Nuggets if their offense can't run as smoothly versus... I think that was substandard defense and there's a lot they can tighten up. And if they make those improvements, that's going to give them a much larger buffer throughout this series. Uh, so I haven't lost at home yet. This playoffs probably the biggest home court advantage in sports mm-hmm. belongs to any Denver team. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's more game three and game four that that's going to get really interesting. I think.
0: Absolutely. Now, Lakers still have the opportunity to get the split, and they're going to have to try and find whatever defense they threw out in the fourth quarter because 132 points in a playoff game is is something you got to try and reduce uh, because you can't rely on LeBron and AD to put up 80 every night together. Um, you're just not going to get that anymore between the two of them. And so you got to win with defense as you did in the bubble. And as you have these first two rounds of of the playoffs.
1: Also like you would call that an on night for Davis,
0: eh? 40 points. Yeah.
1: Like had had he lost an on night yet this playoffs? I don't think so. Like it had really been heads. Davis is on and the Lakers win tails. He's off and they probably lose. Um, So you've got to expect some off night games this series. And if, the Nuggets can win when Davis is on. It feels like almost a certainty. They lose when he's off. So that also, I think, something to keep in mind moving mm-hmm. forward.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're the Lakers, you got to live with 21 from Contavious called Caldwell Pope, right? That's the guy who you expect some regression. And he's going to miss some more threes come game two.
1: You want to make them a bit tougher though?
0: Yeah. 100%. 100% wow lengthy show in the in the first one back in a while shocker i think we'll we'll wrap it up here but appreciate everyone for their time and listening to the pod and uh yeah we'll 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 try and get back to our weekly cadence here now that i've settled in and uh keep things rocking and rolling it's been
1: a pleasure as always Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've made it this far, Sports Next Door, sign out.
0: You get to the station, there's this crazy sound. Hey, man, this ain't no fishing town.
1: Yeah, they're fishing, but that ain't all. They're all.